Hello, everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis uh, back with you here in Waikiki on the 11th of June. You may not know it, but today is King Kamehameha Day. It's a big celebration here. Everybody has a day off, so but I don't mind. I enjoy doing this so much that I'm happy to do it anytime, anyway. So we're continuing in our study through um, the Gospel of Luke. We're in We've gotten up to the second chapter already, I guess I take my time uh, going through that. But uh, this is an exciting portion of scripture that Luke lays out some things for us that no one else does. So it's really important, I think, for us to take a look at it. The first seven verses of the second chapter of Luke have to be the most read and the most popular and the most well-known, most familiar verses ever written in the Bible or any other book for that matter. In every generation since the New Testament has been made available to us, I guess you could say, they've been for the most part largely sentimentalized and uh, it may be difficult for us to overcome the bias that we carry. Uh, I think that there's uh, possibly something new that we could learn from this today. But in addition to being the most familiar, uh, there are also perhaps these are also perhaps the most important verses that were ever written as well in terms of the significance they hold for the entire human race. They are a very simple yet very found way in account of the greatest event that has ever taken place in the world. It's an account of the incarnation of when God actually became a human being, a man. And when he took upon himself not merely the vesture of humanity, but when he wholly identified uh, himself with humanity in a, an irreversible act, um, if you will, of condescension that totally changed and changes everything we ever knew to be true about ourselves or about the world in which we live. Now, we normally associate these verses with the the Advent season and all of the tradition that goes along with that. Uh, but the reality is that we don't even know the year, yet alone the season, and certainly not the day when our Savior was born. So it's good for us to take another look at what we read here as we are actually doing now in the early summer so that we won't have our minds unduly influenced, perhaps, by all the trappings and normally go along with the uh, traditional Christmas season. And although we don't know very uh, precisely the timing of this event, we do know that all of history is measured by it. Everything up until this moment we define as B.C., that is before Christ, and everything since then we note as A.D., that is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. To be sure, the, the present era is not defined as after the birth of our Lord. It is defined as being in whatever that year of our Lord may be, since it is our Lord who lives and reigns in every year since then, and henceforth, now and forevermore. So hence, Anno Domini will define the years to come as long as time continues. And this is not to say that I think it's wrong to celebrate the Christmas season as we do on the date that we do, since we certainly don't know when, but we uh, do know that there had to be such a day, as Luke states here, when Mary gave birth to her firstborn. And although we may not know what that day was specifically in the calendar year, we do know that if ever there was a birth ever at any time on this planet anywhere that truly deserved to be celebrated, there is certainly none more 
uh, worthy, more deserving than this one. And so in the fourth century, shortly after Christianity became a religion to be tolerated in the Roman Empire, with the ascension of Constantine to the throne, the Bishop of Jerusalem actually made inquiry of the Bishop of Rome as to when he thought uh, it would be an appropriate time to have such a celebration. And the Bishop of, the Rome, of Rome at that time wielded somewhat of a considerable, perhaps inordinate degree of authority due in part to his proximity to the center of the ruling political powers of the empire in which Christianity as a whole had just so recently gained such political favor. The Bishop of Rome decided that December 25th should be the day since that was the time that actually the pagans universally pretty much celebrated, had already decided uh, was the time of the year when it was appropriate to celebrate. Although their uh, celebrations focused around uh, the pagan gods and idols they had, much of the traditions we have at Christmas were inherited from their festivities, such as giving gifts, singing carols, mistletoe, hanging wreaths, wreaths rather, <clears throat> decorating trees and so on. Whether it was the Druids up in what later became known as what we call Great Britain, or the Norsemen, uh, the Viking tribes from the further reaches of the north, uh, or in southern Europe, the uh, followers of Saturnalia in Italy, you might say, or, or the followers of Mithra, the god Mithra in Persia. The time of the year in which the solar equinox occurred was to be a time in which the gods were to be worshipped and celebrated, possibly because from that time onward in the year, the days started to get longer. In any case, this was when the Bishop of Rome thought would be the best time to have such a celebration with the idea in mind of somehow sanctifying all of these pagan rituals with the truth and bringing Christian meaning into them. And that was a good idea, actually, if it did nothing more than cause them to see some connection with the God of the Bible and the reasons perhaps for their own celebrations. How well it worked, well, that's another story. But if we can uh, try for a moment to put all that stuff behind us for now and take another look at this Advent story, perhaps we can see a little more of the light that is uh, being revealed in it. This was a time when the light of the world first actually came into the world, when the light came into the darkness. One thing we know about light and darkness is that when the light comes in the darkness, doesn't stick around. Even if it's just a tiny little light, and even if the darkness is as intense as it can be, the darkness can never stand before the light, it must flee. And that's what this story is all about. Well, let me just read to you those verses from the gospel before I jump into this. In those days, and this is Luke uh, chapter two, verses one through seven. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when, when Quirinius the gov was governor of Syria, and all went, went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, to understand what we have here, 
We have to review for a moment what we know about the participants leading up to here. First of all, Joseph is said to only to be betrothed to Mary here, when in actuality, we know from Matthew's account that he was already married to her. And so why does it say he was betrothed when in Matthew's gospel? Uh, this must have been after Mary had already spent her first three months of pregnancy at her cousin Elizabeth's and had returned already to Nazareth, presumably having been encouraged by her cousin to announce at least this news, the good news to Joseph, her husband, to be, or at least hopefully still so at that point. But in any case, she was said to be found with child, and Joseph's first reaction was to divorce her until convinced in a dream by an angel uh, of Mary's chastity that it was still intact and that the babe was to be none other than the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us. And Joseph's response at that point was to go ahead and marry her immediately. There was probably a very quick wedding with just the immediate family attending, his obvious intention being to minimize the damages in terms of whatever suspicion would have been uh, uh, surrounding that marriage in that community where they, any hint of promiscuity was very strongly condemned. Of course, by then, since she had already been three months pregnant, some of that damage might have been difficult to contain. But once again, here God comes to the rescue by providentially making it necessary for Joseph to leave town. And of course, Joseph is not going to leave Mary behind, although legally he could have been conceivably uh, able to register in the Roman mandated censor for both of them by himself. We know from the extra biblical historical records that, sweetie, you want to close that door? <clears throat> sweetie, close the door, please. Thank you. Just a little outside noise here. Sorry about that. So uh, we know the first census issued by Caesar Augustus was in the year 8 BC. And then subsequently to that, they were conducted every 14 years or so. The next one occurred in 6 AD. And these were done for the purposes of collecting revenues, just like we do today in order to know how much tax we can expect to collect. We need first to know how many people there were to be taxed. And while this may have been resisted perhaps initially by Herod, who wanted perhaps to have more control over his own domain, his little kingdom there in Judah as possible, it could not be put off indefinitely. And I suspect that uh, there was a deadline imposed by which time it was necessary to have this sensory census uh, concluded, which was what compelled in part the urgency of Joseph going all the way down to Bethlehem with his wife as she was in the ninth month by then of her pregnancy. By the way, the Romans could not care less from which community Joseph was to register himself and his wife. The only reason why it would have been necessary to register in Bethlehem would have uh, certainly been due to the requirements imposed upon them by their uh, Jewish religious leadership at the time. The Jews were, they kept very detailed records of genealogies and the land of Israel it, itself was initially portioned off by Joshua when the Israelites first came into it, according to their clan and their tribe. And every 50 years or so since then, at least according to the law, they were supposed to have what they called a year of Jubilee, in which all debts were to be forgiven, all slaves to be set free, all land which may have been possessed for whatever reason by someone other than its original intended owner was to be restored. 
to a descendant of the family who owned it originally. And all these genealogical records were, uh, were very important. By the way, they were eventually destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD when the, they uh, were overthrown. Uh, Jerusalem was burned, the temple was burned, all the Jews there were killed at the time. But at this time, these records were still intact, and since Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, he had to register at the town, which was the birthplace of David, which was uh, Bethlehem. Now, despite the apparent urgency involved in Joseph and Mary's trip to Bethlehem, which we would estimate to have taken place sometime between the year 6 and 4 B.C., this was really a godsend for them, and especially for Mary because of her condition, which although suspect, I'm sure by now in the eyes of her family and community, was probably not yet to the point where uh, <clears throat> they could know for sure because uh, she hadn't given birth yet, whether or not she'd actually be, uh, been unfaithful or before their, mar- before their marriage, <clears throat> or if they had been uh, promiscuous before their marriage. Had the birthday place in Nazareth, they surely would have known, and that would have been a catastrophic from the standpoint of maintaining her standing in the community. She would have become an immediately outcast along with her son. First God foresaw all these contingencies and had made provisions for them. That's why Micah was able to prophesy some 700 years earlier that out of Bethlehem would come a king who would rule Israel, and who was himself from of old, from ancient times. Now, Jesus, to fulfill this prophecy about him, had to be born in Bethlehem. And even though Luke does not mention this prophecy, as does Matthew, it was not as if it was not one which was not quite already quite known to anyone familiar with the Old Testament scripture. Surely Joseph and Mary would have been it. And of course, this is just one of numerous demonstrations of how God's sovereignty over both his word and the events of the world reigns supreme. Certainly the pagan emperor Augustus Caesar had no knowledge of this scripture or of the role he played in bringing it about. Uh, yet, as the Bible says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichsoever way he wants, regardless of whether the king is a believer or not. So when Luke says that Joseph excuse me, and Mary are still engaged, while uh, in Matthew it says they were already married. What it means is that while they have officially gone through the marriage ritual, where they have been pronounced husband and wife by the rabbi, they are still actually in a state of being technically just betrothed, because until the marriage has been consummated, which has not yet been the case, from God's perspective, the marriage is not yet Real. That is to say, they are not yet one flesh, even though they may have been married from man's perspective. They have not been yet joined together totally by God. Now, the scripture uh, says that when they were in Bethlehem for some days, the time came for Mary to give birth. We may speculate excuse me, that this may have been a week or two. I I wouldn't think that it would have been much longer than that because during that time, they must have been residing in a place that was not normally considered to be an acceptable vote or an acceptable accommodation for for any human being to be dwelling in, assuming they even had a roof over their heads or not. They were 
they were in essence homeless during this time. Now, I would imagine that would not have taken days for them to get registered once they arrived. And the reason they stayed was, well, possibly for one, Mary was not in a condition to be traveling. And for two, perhaps it would not have been a good idea in any case to go back to Nazareth right away, at least until a few months had passed. So the question of the timing of the matter of her birth would not be under so much suspicion. Uh, possibly being cognizant of this prophecy in, in my, Micah, they felt compelled to stay as well. So in any case, they stayed there in Bethlehem, despite the fact they were homeless. And despite the fact that they were both likely in their early teens, they had no relatives or friends with whom they could stay even for a short while, awaiting uh, the birth of their firstborn. From the Mathean account, we know they stayed after the birth as well, actually for another couple of years in Bethlehem. And surely, of course, I then would have found a place certainly before then to stay. But for now, they were homeless and they were in very desperate straits. The place they did find to stay where the birth took place was what you might say was the equivalent of what today we would call a parking lot. You see, people back then didn't have cars. So when they traveled, they usually did so with the aid of beasts of burden. Whenever they lodged anywhere, they needed to a place to keep uh, their animals. And this would have frequently been underneath the living quarters because they wanted to protect them from being stolen or exposed to the elements. And a lot of the facilities were built in a way which would allow some accommodation for the animals in that location. Now, the word which was translated as in, in this account, is not really an in. The Greek word is kataluma. And it may be translated as an eating place or a resting place, but usually it refers to a guest room or possibly a dining room. Uh, it was the same word, for instance, that was used uh, when Jesus sent his disciples to prepare the place where they were to celebrate the Passover the night just prior to his crucifixion. They were to ask the owner of the house where the guest room was, uh, as it's translated here. In any case, it was not very likely anything like the very romanticized versions we have all seen on display everywhere on Christmas, what we call a, a crash or a Christmas crash, where you have Mary and Joseph in a very homey setting with a few barnyard animals looking on in wonder and awe as they behold Jesus, Jesus in the center of all highlighted by this aura of light all around with everyone just adoring this lovely baby. The truth is that no one was really paying any attention to the frantic plight of Mary and Joseph as they were trying to seek some shelter and maybe some help as they went through the process. She went through the process of labor in the midst of these pack animals, shifting and vying for room in the crampy and damp and acrid quarters and stench of manure and urine, and along with the flies and mosquitoes and other incessant pests, trying to fill their stomachs, probably without any light at all, in the midst of the dirt and grime <clears throat> the forlorn infant son of God came into the world. The conditions accurately describing this treatment, the reception that was accorded to Jesus when he made his debut, his entry on the scene of our planet, could be summed up in a couple of words, actually simply stated, no vacancy <clears throat> generally will suffice. We, have all the, we see these signs on occasions ourselves, 
perhaps when we've been weary and worn out from our travels and looking for a place to lay down our weary souls and get some long overdue rest. <clears throat> In any case, uh, the case of Jesus, this was what pretty much described his entire life while he was here, as he was later to have been quoted as saying once when he was queried as to the requirements for becoming one of his disciples. He answered very simply, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the phrase, by the way, used there to lay his head was the same one used by the gospel writer later to describe exactly what Jesus did on the cross after giving up his final breath, which was apparently the only place in which the world was willing to accommodate him. Well, this treatment of Jesus has not really changed over the years since that time he was walking among us. No, the no vacancy signs are still conspicuously placed out there wherever, for the most part, an invitation is made to let Jesus in. Actually, if you believe the book of Revelation, that uh, the account of the seven churches there refers to the different eras of the church between the first and second advent, then it would seem that we are today living in the era of what we would call the church of Laodicea. For that church age, Jesus is not only depicted as being rejected by the world, but as literally standing outside of the door of the church itself and knocking and asking if there's anyone who's willing to open so they might let him in that they could dine together. That, if true, which I certainly believe it is, would be a very sad commentary on the state of affairs in the church today, and that I'm sure is no part, no small contributor to the decision by so many believers uh, to part ways with the church and go it on their own, at least here in Hawaii. It's no rare thing to see such professed believers to be out on their own and not participating in the body of Christ who gather on a regular basis to worship together and to encourage one another as they see the day approaching in obedience, actually, to God's word. And that, I suppose, is another very sad sign of the times because it indicates an extreme lack of spiritual maturity on the part of such professed believers. If they are true believers, they are certainly no more than mere babes in Christ. I don't care how long they've been a believer. Sheep without a shepherd, wandering out in the fields of sin, randomly scattered by the wolves and falling easy prey to the enemy of their souls. Well, the text here mentions that Mary gave birth to her firstborn. It doesn't say she gave birth to her only son. And this text itself would be a good piece of evidence to demonstrate the highly contested fact that Mary subsequently gave birth to numerous other children. I'm not taking the time here to elaborate on that since I've done it elsewhere, but let me just say there's probably very little in the scriptural account when taken as a whole, which has more substantiating documentation than this very fact that Jesus had numerous younger siblings subsequently who were the children of Mary and Joseph, born after him. And for any to deny it is, in, in my mind, a clear sign that the testimony of scripture doesn't hold the rightful place of having a foremost priority in their hearts and minds that it should. The fact that Jesus was the firstborn also actually indicates that he, according to Jewish law, had the what was called the primogenitor, meaning uh, that he was entitled to the bulk of whatever inheritance his parents may have had to pass on to him. Now, they certainly didn't have much in the way of earthly possessions, but the one thing they did have of value to give was their right to the claim of being in the direct lineage of David. And so Jesus was born as a legitimate heir with the first and foremost rights to the throne of David, according to 
Jewish law. The fact that Luke mentions that Jesus was wrapped in strips of cloth and laid in a manger is of significance, not because there was anything unusual about this procedure. It merely indicates Mary was a dutiful mother and cared about her child. This was a customary practice among mothers in those days, and it was done to help keep the baby warm, protect him somewhat from the elements, and to shield his limbs, supposedly to protect their bones, keep them straight. The manger here was just a feeding trough placed there for the sake of the animals. And we might, were we to look at such a site today, get the distinct impression that he was being treated no differently than they would any corpse actually being laid or prepared for burial. And this was exactly uh, actually the way bodies were prepared for burial, burial, burial excuse me, at that time. As we can well see from the fact that Lazarus was also wrapped in such strips of cloth although not called squaddling cloths there, but grave cloths. They are essentially the same thing. The point is that Luke is moved apparently by the Holy Spirit to write these these things down for a reason. And from the very moment of his birth, the primary reason why this baby came into the world was to die. And this was all that the world had to offer him. It was not as if this was something that caught our Savior off guard. This was why he came into the world, to die for our sins. He was willing to do that for us because that was the only way we could be saved from our sins or the consequences of those sins. And he knew that when he agreed to take upon himself the humble role we see him in here, yet he did it anyway because of his love for us. This is a picture of what love is if we understand it correctly. If we understand what it was that Jesus had to be willing to do in order to save us, if we understand the extent to which he was willing to go, And he was willing to go to that extent to do whatever it took. He uh, was willing to be kicked out so we could be invited in. He was willing to be rejected so we could be accepted. He was willing to die so we could live. The thing that makes this what we call good news is that God never changes. He's always the same today, yesterday, and forever. So we can know that this love he demonstrated in giving up his power, giving up his exalted position far above every name that could ever be named in order to assume the weakest, the lowest, the most seemingly pitiable position imaginable with all the inconveniences and struggles and contempt that go along with it is the same love that he possesses for his children even now, and that will never change. So what have we to fear? What have we to concern ourselves with more than the noble task of making this his glory known. Those of us who have already experienced the transforming grace that he gives in our lives. So why should we be concerned with anything else, really? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder we have of your love for us. Help us never to forget it and to see how lovely how that love can truly liberate us to focus all our energies on the tasks that you have given to us, to spread the wonderful news of your love and grace to those yet remaining in darkness, enslaved to the deceptive strategies of the enemy of our souls, and to make disciples of those coming out of darkness into your marvelous light. Refill us, Lord, with your spirit, embolden us, empower us to do that. For your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. That sort of brings us to another end of another uh, episode in our uh, trek through the gospel of Luke. 
So thank you for being with us here in uh, Waikiki on this King Amehameha Day we celebrate. Uh, This is Kim Nicolaitis signing off with Advent Christians. Until next time, see you then.